Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, again, good to be with you guys. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Kent. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you have a Bible nearby, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Mark chapter 12, to that passage that we just read. Mark chapter 12 is where we will be for the majority of our time together today. Um, I'm glad you guys are here. Uh, I had a little bit of a fear that after one week of a series on politics, nobody would show back up. So I'm just glad that there's anybody in the room with me today. So thanks for being here. Uh, if you didn't happen to listen in to last week's teaching, uh, we did start a series called Jesus and Politics, where we are just doing our best to sort of navigate some of the partisan craziness of our day with the help of the scriptures. And last week specifically in the teaching, I just laid out my case for why biblically I think we as followers of Jesus should care about what happens in the political world. Not that it should be all that we care about or even that it should be the primary thing that we care about, but that we should at least be aware of what's happening in that realm and concern ourselves with it from time to time. And we said the reason for that is because Jeremiah 29 says that as exiles, it uses that term, as exiles, we are to care about the welfare of the society that we find ourselves a part of. And what we said last week is that, like it or not, politics is a big part of how the welfare of our society gets pursued or not pursued. And so since politics affects people and we care about people, we should, to some degree, be aware of what's happening in the political world and be able to speak intelligently to it in some regard. So that's where we were last Sunday. Today, I want us to move on to what really is a whopper of a question, and that's whose side is Jesus on anyway? Whose side is Jesus on? Where would he fall in our modern political spectrum? I told you it was a whopper of a question for us to answer. That is a question I think that an awful lot of people have attempted an answer to, an awful lot of people have speculated about, wondered about, and quite honestly, that quite a few people have spoken overconfidently as if they know the answer to, is whose side is Jesus on? In some circles, I think it often gets assumed that Jesus would be a Republican. I think in general, people get there from some version of what they think Jesus thinks about subjects like gay marriage and abortion and things of that nature. And then I think sometimes, often in reaction to that perspective on things, more and more people have said, no, absolutely not, Jesus would be a Democrat. And I think they get there from some version of what they think Jesus thinks about the poor and the disadvantaged, the disenfranchised, and maybe some of the radical nature of his teachings on money and possessions. Maybe they arrive there from those perspectives. So which one is it, right? Would Jesus be a Republican? Would he be a Democrat? Is he somewhere in the middle? Is he like a moderate, so to speak? Is Jesus entirely apolitical to begin with? And he doesn't even care about that world at all? Whose side is Jesus on? 
I want us to attempt an answer to that question in our time together today. And I want us to do that by looking at this passage from Mark chapter 12. Because in this passage, two camps of people, politically and socially speaking, two camps of people in Jesus' day approach Jesus and they ask him a question, also kind of to determine whose side he's on. And although their perspectives and their political camps are a little bit different than ours are today, I think we can still learn a lot from how Jesus answers their question that they ask. So let's take a look. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So first, let's wrap our minds around who it is that asked Jesus this question in the first place, because knowing who these people are is going to tell us a lot about why they ask the question that they ask him. We are told that it is two distinct groups of people that ask Jesus this question, one group called the Pharisees and another group called the Herodians. These two groups were two major factions of ancient Jewish society, and they often were actually at odds with one another. They didn't like one another very much. The Pharisees, for the most part, were very anti-Rome. At the time, Rome was an occupying power over the Jewish people, and the Pharisees were very anti-Rome. They felt that Roman occupation sort of infringed on Israel's independent status as God's people. The Herodians, on the other hand, were, for the most part, very pro-Rome, namely because it gave them and their leader more political power and more political leverage. So Pharisees, very anti-Rome. Herodians, very pro-Rome. You can start to see how these two groups of people would not have gotten along with each other. So in these two camps, among these two camps, you had a lot of name-calling, a lot of accusations. Each group thought the other one was the problem with their world. If only we could identify with such a situation in our society today, right? Nothing like our world today. It's a good thing the Bible, after all, is relevant, right? So here are the two groups of people that approach Jesus to ask him a question. And it says that they ask him this question, quote, in order to trap him in his words. In other words, they ask this question in order to pin Jesus down as being either pro-Rome or anti-Rome, as belonging to either the Pharisee party or the Herodian party. This is a question at the end of the day about where Jesus's allegiances lie. But before they get to their question, they pile on some empty flattery just to sort of But just to sort of boost Jesus up a little bit in their eyes, they choose to pile on some flattery towards him. Look with me at verse 14. And they came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. All right, do you see what's happening here? They're setting Jesus up as a completely objective, neutral party entirely, so that whoever's side he ends up taking in the answer to his question has more credibility. It's actually a pretty common tactic. So if my wife and I came over to your house for dinner this week and we were in the middle of an argument with each other and we sit down at your dinner table and we say, hey, we really enjoy your perspective. We just feel like you're super thoughtful and objective and we were wondering if you would speak into this issue we're having with us. If you're smart, you would know you're being set up, right? 
because you would go, what they're wanting me to do is take somebody's side, but the more we try to paint you as a neutral party, the more whoever side you end up taking has more credibility, right? Very similar to what the Pharisees and the Herodians are doing in this passage. So after setting the whole thing up this way, they finally get to their question that they have for Jesus. Here it is. Look with me at the second half of verse 14. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So it gets a little lost in the translation here, but what they're asking about in this question is not taxes in general. It's actually whether or not they should pay one particular tax in that day. It was a tax called the imperial tax, and it was the tax you paid simply for the privilege of being a Roman citizen. So if you paid the tax, this particular one, you were in essence consenting to Roman occupation over you. You were saying you were okay with it symbolically. But if you didn't pay the imperial tax, you were setting yourself up as a defector and a rebel against the Roman Empire, which if you know anything about history, does not go well for you. So this question that they're asking Jesus is a loaded question. The reason they're asking about this particular tax is because this was one of the hot-button political issues of their day. And specifically, it was a hot-button issue between these two political camps. So it's not a perfect parallel, but it would be sort of like in our society today if a group of Republicans and a group of Democrats went up to Jesus and they asked him where he stood on the issue of gun control or universal health care or anything like that that's sort of a hot-button issue between these two camps. They're asking Jesus about one particular issue because his answer will likely allow them to put him into one camp or the other, to identify what side of the issue he is on. They're asking Jesus in order to figure out what political side Jesus is on. So let's see how Jesus responds to this loaded question. Verse 15, But knowing their hypocrisy, in other words, Jesus sees right through their motives in asking this question. He said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, in other words, a coin in that day, and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? Whose image is this on this coin? And they said to him, Caesar's. Now, just a quick word on what's happening here. Jesus asked them for a denarius, which was a common type of currency in this particular day. So first notice that Jesus himself doesn't have one of these coins. It's at least interesting, right? But he asked them if they have one, and they do. So he looks at it, and he asks the question, whose likeness and inscription is on this coin? They had political images on their coins, much like we have the images of presidents on our coins today. And they answer the question, Caesar's image is on the coin. The denarius had Caesar's image on it because it was actually money minted out of Caesar's personal wealth. So it was quite literally Caesar's money. So in light of that, Jesus says this, verse 17, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So Jesus' response is that they should render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. Caesar's image is on this coin. It's from his own treasury, 
So Jesus says, give him the coin if he asks for it. But, Jesus says, using that same logic, you should also give to God what belongs to God. It's quite the cryptic answer, isn't it? So what does all this mean exactly? Well, I think one way to read this passage is to assume that Jesus is saying we should give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, meaning we should do things like obeying laws and paying taxes, because those things are in a different category than things that are God's, things like prayer and worship and our private spiritual lives. In other words, you could read it as Jesus saying that the physical and the spiritual are two different realms of life, and they don't really ever have to interfere with one another because they're mutually exclusive categories. So if we wanted to visualize this, we might do something like this. So there are things that are Caesar's, and there are other things that are God's. The belief at work is that each person has a public, civic part of their life, and then they have a private, spiritual part of their life, and that really, those are two very different things. That's one way to read what Jesus is saying in this passage, and I would argue that's how an awful lot of people tend to operate, whether they get it from this passage or not. They sort of divide their life into separate categories. Unfortunately, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all in this passage. And here's why. Because remember Jesus' logic in his response. He says, the coin has Caesar's image, so give it to Caesar. But then he says, we should give to God what is God's. So that, of course, raises the question, what has God's image on it? Anybody want to take a guess? We do, right? According to Genesis, human beings have God's image on them. As in all of our lives and everything in our lives has God's image on it. So I don't think Jesus' point is that we should give the public civic parts of our life to Caesar and the private spiritual parts of our life to God. I think his point is that we should give all of our lives, everything completely, politics included, over to God. So I think a better representation of what Jesus is saying would actually be something like this. That all of life, everything in our life falls under the rule and the reign of Jesus and his kingdom. The point is not that we would separate our lives into two different spheres. The point is that we would bring our entire life, including our politics and everything else, under the rule and reign of Jesus to use a term that we're somewhat familiar with in our society. What Jesus is talking about in this passage is the idea of allegiance. That's what he's discussing. Allegiance, that we would give what is due the government to the government, to Uncle Sam or Trump or the IRS or whatever it may be, that we would give what is owed, what is due to them, but that we would give our allegiance to God, which means our entire life and every square inch of it. Jesus' point is that we should give taxes to Caesar, but that we should give our allegiance to God. Now, there are some people in our society who would argue that there's no need to even separate out those two things, what is Caesar's and what is God's, because really they're one and the same. These people believe that since America is a Christian nation, and we've talked before about how I don't love that term, but there are people that think that since America is a Christian nation, giving your allegiance to God 
is giving your allegiance to America and the other way around as well. We hear people say often that their allegiance is to, quote, God and country. The belief there is that there's really no tension between those two things. There's no tension between your allegiance being to your country and your allegiance being to your God. We see this belief at work often in the church, within the actual church itself. So uh, in the church I grew up in, and maybe some of you guys can identify with this experience as well, once a year, usually around the 4th of July, we would have what was called a patriotic service. During these services, we would sing songs like the National Anthem and America the Beautiful and God Bless America. We would sing songs like that instead of hymns or instead of songs about Jesus. And I distinctly remember growing up on these particular Sundays where we would have a patriotic service. I remember looking around the room and seeing men and women who the rest of the year were not even at church. And if they were, they were totally disengaged in everything that was happening, worship included. These same men and women could be seen on this Sunday lifting their hands as we sang about how beautiful America was. We would have never called it this, but it was quite literally a worship service for America. We were worshiping America. That's what was happening in that moment. The historical term for that is nationalism. Nationalism is the elevation of your particular country over and above all other allegiances. Nationalism is actually a really common thing in our country. It's becoming more common, it seems. It tends to be especially common for some reason among self-proclaimed Christians and I'll say specifically southern white Christians is who it's common among. And within the church, it often takes the form of taking an allegiance to Jesus and an allegiance to America and sort of throwing them in a blender together and operating as if they're the same thing. The problem, though, is that that's not how allegiances work. The word allegiance literally means undivided devotion. That's what the word means. So if your allegiance is to two different things, that necessarily means that it's divided, which means it's not allegiance. Jesus actually says this explicitly at one point in the Gospels when it comes to money, when it comes to how we relate to money. He says, you cannot serve, or we might read that as, you cannot have ultimate allegiance to both God and money. Notice that he doesn't say you shouldn't serve both God and money. He says you can't, as in it's not possible. Your allegiance cannot be to God and also to money. And your allegiance cannot be to both God and country either. Allegiance to the kingdom of God and allegiance to America are not the same thing. Now, you can have an allegiance to God and a profound appreciation for America you can have an allegiance to God and a commitment to America, to be sure, but you cannot have an allegiance to both God and America. And if you think you can, that probably just means that your allegiance is actually to America and to America's modified version of God. And that's not the same thing. That's not the God of the Bible. So when it comes to this question asked of Jesus... These two groups of people want to know about Jesus' allegiance. They want to know, Jesus, where do your allegiances lie? The Herodians want Jesus' allegiances to be to Rome, and the Pharisees want Jesus' allegiances to be 
to Israel, or more accurately, to their personal version of the nation of Israel. To which Jesus says, no, my allegiance is to God, not to either. So the answer to whose side is Jesus on is actually neither side. And when it comes to us today, in the same way, the answer to whose side is Jesus on is also neither. No one party fully embodies the values and the message of Jesus. And I'm going to say that again because I don't think it gets said enough in the American church. No one party embodies the values and the message of Jesus. Both parties probably reflect aspects of the kingdom of God. They get parts of it right in some ways, but neither one fully captures it. I love the way author Brett McCracken puts this in a recent article for the Gospel Coalition. He said this, Consistent faithfulness to Scripture will never square with total alignment with any political party. A gospel agenda is not set by partisan think tanks in Washington, D.C. It is set by Scripture. A gospel agenda may align with some aspects of one political party and some of another and should spur us to engage in those areas, but it also decidedly rejects some aspects of both. God's agenda is better, bigger, and more glorious than any one party, nation, culture, or time. The mission of Jesus will outlast every White House tenure. It will outlast America itself. For the Christian, the, quote, right side of history is always the side that places faithfulness to the eternal God above loyalty to a temporal tribe. I wish I would have written that. (laughs) Right? Isn't that good? So very helpful. So we talked last Sunday about how one common response to politics in our culture is to just decide not to care about politics at all. That's what we discussed at length last week, that some people respond to the brokenness and divisiveness and the corruption of our political world by just saying, you know what, I'm just not going to care about any of that. It's too broken. It's too corrupt. That's one response that a lot of people tend to have. But I think another common response that people tend to have to politics is what we might call package deal politics. Package deal politics is when you find a party or a candidate's position on one issue compelling, and so you feel like you have to take on their entire platform in light of that. It's it's essentially voting on a single issue. So hypothetically, and hang with me on this next part because I know I'm about to paint with some broad brushes, but just for the sake of illustration, let's say that as a follower of Jesus, I find the Republican platform on sexual ethics compelling. Or let's say I find the Democratic platform on caring for the poor and the disadvantaged compelling. Whatever it might be for you personally. The easy lie for me to believe is that if I find a party's stance on one issue compelling, I must find their stance on all issues compelling. So people end up concluding, well, if I agree with the Republicans on ethics or sexuality, I guess I also have to agree with them on gun control. I guess I also have to agree with them in being against universal health care. Or... On the other side, if I agree with Democrats on caring for the poor and the disadvantaged, I guess I also have to agree with them on issues like abortion or issues like the redefinition of gender and sexuality. And increasingly, candidates and parties are actually fueling this type of all-or-nothing thinking. 
Instead of making room for a variety of different perspectives within each party, what most parties are doing is that they're convincing their supporters that to defeat the evils of the other party, everyone needs to buy in completely to their platform. In other words, the political world wants to create tribes. And do you know why? Because tribes are easy. When you're in a tribe, you have common friends and you have common enemies. There are people I'm with, there are people I'm against. And that's because tribes are fueled by the idea of allegiance. Allegiance, by its very definition, can only be total. It's all or nothing. It's either be just like us or be completely against us. Those are the only two options. Either embrace our perspective on every single issue or find yourself a different party altogether. Increasingly, political parties don't just want your support, they want your allegiance. But if we're thinking biblically, that should be a non-starter for us as followers of Jesus. Because we should be of the belief that the only person who gets our allegiance is Jesus himself. And if we're operating that way, if we're truly operating in that principle, there are going to be quite a few times where we find ourselves at odds with both major political parties. Because neither party has a monopoly on Christian values. Neither of them. I'll put it this way. Uh, Neither party is actually trying to help you know how to engage with politics well as a follower of Jesus. I hope we realize that. They are both trying to co-opt you and your voice and your tribe and ultimately your allegiance to their side of the aisle. That's their objective. But as followers of Jesus, our posture should be that our allegiance is not for sale. That's not up for grabs. Sure, our vote may go one way or the other, but our allegiance is and always will be to the kingdom of Jesus. Now, My guess is that if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you wholeheartedly agree with that statement, right? I mean, who's going to disagree with the statement, our allegiance should be to Jesus, right? I think we're all okay sort of assenting to that particular statement. But here's what I want us to do. For the next little bit, I want us to just take an extended look at each of our lives to figure out whether or not we functionally operate as if our allegiance is to Jesus. Whether or not we live as if that statement is true. Because I think you would agree that agreeing with an idea and living as if it's true are actually two very different concepts at the end of the day. So, for the rest of our time together, I would love for us just to walk through a handful of investigative questions to help us discern if Jesus has our allegiance or if maybe we've inadvertently given our allegiance to a political party or platform. Now, as a warning, these are designed to be a little bit invasive and a little bit convicting. I'm just going to tell you that up front. So I would encourage you to press in to listen even if there are moments where you don't want to listen and to answer these questions for yourself as honestly as you can so that they can be as helpful as they were designed to be. Make sense? Okay. So some questions to help us determine whether or not we've given a political party or platform or candidate our allegiance. First question, 
Do you find it hard to criticize your party of choice? Do you find it hard to criticize your party of choice? So let me clarify just one thing from what I said earlier. Although neither political party has a monopoly on the way of Jesus, that doesn't mean you can't have a party of choice or a party of preference. I think it is still fine, as we mentioned last week, for a follower of Jesus to say, hey, I generally gravitate towards the Republican Party, or I generally gravitate towards the Democratic Party. I think that's entirely okay for a follower of Jesus. But that said, there is a vast difference between gravitating towards one particular party and believing that that party can do no wrong. So let me just ask, are you able to speak critically about parts of your party's platform? Are you able to easily say, yeah, I vote Democrat, but I honestly think they get it wrong on this issue or these issues? Are you able to say, yeah, I generally vote Republican, but honestly, I I fundamentally disagree with how they go about this issue or these issues entirely? Are you able to vote one way while simultaneously not having to sign off on every aspect of that party's platform? Can you speak easily and readily about areas where you differ, where you break from your preferred party's way of thinking? If you can't do that, or if it makes you terribly uncomfortable to do that, that's a good sign that a political party has stolen your allegiance to some degree. Second question, are you able to speak well of the other party? Are you able to speak well of the other party? So if you do gravitate towards one particular party, can you speak well of the other one on the other side of the aisle? Can you say, hey, I really admire this about their platform? Can you say, yeah, we don't disagree, with, we don't agree on everything, but I, I do think they do an incredible job of this. Can you speak well of them even though you see things differently? The message that your party will try to sell you at nearly every point is that anyone on the other side is an enemy of yours and is an enemy of America. That they are trying to tear down everything that you and I hold dear. And if I could just speak bluntly for a second, that is such a lazy lie to tell. It's such a lazy lie to tell. What they are trying to convince you to do is to see a friend as an enemy so that they can weaponize that belief in their particular favor. It's not even all that subtle when they do it most of the time. Now, are there people on the edges of each party that really are trying to do real damage to our country? Absolutely there are. But the bulk of the people on the other side of the aisle are people who love our country just like you do. They want the best for our country just like you do. They just have different ideas about how to get there than you do. And that's okay. There's room for that, or at least I hope there is. There used to be room for that in our country. I think one person who embodied this sort of generous posture towards the other side of the aisle really, really well was the late Senator John McCain. There's a clip online of him that makes, it's, it makes the round on the internet every few years, and it was from when he ran against Barack Obama in the 2008 presidential election. And in the clip, he was doing a town hall, so it was sort of an open mic Q&A type of thing. And there was a woman in the crowd that got up, grabbed the mic, 
And she started off her question by saying, quote, I don't trust Obama, he's an Arab. Implying, like many people did at the time, that Obama was likely connected to terrorists in some way. And right when she says that opening statement, John McCain takes the mic away from her and says, no ma'am, he's not. That's not who he is. He's a decent man, he's a family man whom I just happen to fundamentally disagree with on some things. That's the posture of being able to treat the other people on the other side of the aisle generously. Being able to give them the benefit of the doubt. Speaking well of them even if we disagree. And listen, John McCain was a man of deep political conviction, right? Literally his nickname is the Maverick. Like nobody would have ever accused him of being wishy-washy on anything politically. But yet in that moment he was able to speak well of his opponent, of the person on the other side of the aisle. He just didn't feel like he had to dehumanize them any time that they disagreed with him. Sadly, a lot has changed in American politics since 2008. But I want you to just ask yourself, could you take that sort of posture towards those that you disagree with? Could you take the posture that he took? Could you speak well of the people on the other side of the aisle, even if you disagree with them? Next question. Do you evangelize more for your party than for your faith? Do you evangelize more for your party than for your faith? This one might get a few of us, I'm afraid. If I were to just take a survey of your conversations with other people in the public square, would they say that you talk just as readily about your faith as you do about your politics? Would they say that you're just as clear about the gospel as you are about who you voted for or who we should vote for? And let's just throw this one in the ring too while we're on the topic. This includes social media. So if anyone who follows your post on Facebook is clear about who you voted for but unclear on whether or not you follow Jesus, that's a problem most likely. If someone who follows you on Twitter knows exactly how you think they should vote on political issues, but doesn't have any idea what you think about Jesus, that's a problem. Do you more easily evangelize for your party or candidate than you do for Jesus? Jesus also once said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if what overflows out of your mouth is more often about politics than it is about Jesus, that's a pretty good indicator of where your heart allegiances truly lie. Next question. Do you jump to your candidate's defense anytime they're criticized? Do you jump to your candidate's defense anytime they are criticized? So when someone speaks critically or negatively about the candidate that you voted for, the candidate you're going to vote for, do you feel this immediate need to refute whatever was said. If you're a Republican and you hear someone critiquing Trump's character or his foreign policy or his views on whatever it might be, do you feel this gravitational pull in you to chime in and argue with them about it or correct them on it? If you're a Democrat and you hear someone speaking the same way about Biden, do you find it extremely difficult to resist the urge to jump in and defend whoever your candidate is? Or, do you feel the freedom, as I think we should, 
to say, yeah, I don't love that about him either. Yeah, I don't agree with what he said there either. Yeah, I see how that's concerning about what they just said. I totally get it. Do we feel that amount of freedom when someone speaks critically about the person that we want to vote for or voted for? Because if you feel the need to defend your candidate of choice every time they're criticized in any environment, that's a good chance that that candidate has successfully co-opted your allegiance to their side. Last question. Do you have more in common with those who share your politics than with those who share your faith? Do you have more in common with those who share your politics than with those who share your faith? Do you feel more at ease around members of your political party, or do you feel more at ease around fellow followers of Jesus from all over the political map? Do you feel like you have more in common with fellow Republicans or fellow Christians, with fellow Democrats or with fellow followers of Jesus? When you are researching a a particular political issue of some sort, are you more interested in knowing what other members of your party think or what followers of Jesus you trust think, regardless of which way they lean politically. If we identify more with people who share our politics than we do with those who share our faith, that's a good sign that we have been more formed, more discipled and shaped by a political party than we have by the kingdom of Jesus. So there we have it. Five questions to help us discern where our allegiances truly lie. If they they rely on a political party or candidate or, on the other hand, to the kingdom of Jesus. I would encourage you this week, whenever you have time on your own or maybe together with your life group, to spend some time thinking through and wrestling through these questions openly and honestly. Now, once you do that, once you sort through questions like these, And maybe you realize, okay, I think maybe some of my allegiance currently is to a political party or a political candidate. If you realize that your allegiances are off to some degree, the question then becomes, how do we go about changing those allegiances? How do we go about detaching our allegiance from a political party or platform or candidate and attaching our allegiance to the kingdom of God? Well, I think first, you need to know that allegiance at the end of the day is a worship issue. It's a worship issue. If your allegiance is to a political party, what is happening there is that that party has become the object of your worship more than Jesus has. So I'm sure most of you guys know this, but worship is way more than what Eric and Sarah lead us in every Sunday. That's just a part of worship. Worship is about where our time and our energy and our resources and our efforts go on a regular basis. Where do those things go most instinctively and naturally? That is a good way to determine who we worship or what we worship. Which means chances are you worshiped your way into your particular allegiances. Chances are it was due to some combination of Your selection of friends that you hang out with most of the time, your consumption of certain types of media, the people that you follow and don't follow on social media, the articles that you read and don't read on the internet, through some combination of those types of things, 
you worshiped your way into your political allegiances, which means the only way to change your allegiance is to worship your way out. So maybe, for instance, this week, if you've realized that your allegiances are off in some way when it comes to the political world, instead of this week listening to NPR, the entire way to work, where they talk about all things political, maybe instead you use that time listening to a podcast that teaches the Bible or worship music instead and really engaging with those things as you listen. Maybe you instead spend that time on the drive to work praying for God to shift your allegiances to the kingdom of God instead of the kingdom's of this world. Maybe instead of waking up each morning and flipping through the news app before you even do anything else and reading everything about everything that Trump just rage tweeted or everything that Biden just mispronounced in some way, maybe instead, before you do anything else, you go and spend that time in the scriptures because that's going to be the first thing that forms your mind that day instead of the news. Or maybe for you, your political allegiances just have an even stronger grip on your life. They've just gotten entirely out of hand. And so maybe for you, you just need to do an outright political detox for a season. Maybe you need to delete the news app entirely off your phone for a little bit. Delete social media off your phone entirely for a season. Maybe you need to stay away from the newspaper or the news as much as you possibly can and just replace all the time that you would usually give to those things with things that actually cultivate and deepen a love for Jesus in your everyday life. I don't know exactly what it needs to look like for you. I think that's something that you have to discern with the help of the Holy Spirit and the help of other Spirit-filled believers that know you in your life. But one way or another, if you realize that you have worshipped your way into a political allegiance, formulate some kind of plan to start worshipping your way out. But whatever you do, do not buy the lie that you can give your allegiance both to a political party and to Jesus. With every single day that you allow your allegiance to cling to a political party, your allegiance to Jesus will fade. Your love for Jesus will fade. That's the way worship works. You know, what's fascinating to me is that it was in many ways in Jesus' day, it was these two political perspectives that we read about in Mark chapter 12 that worked together to have Jesus crucified. It was the Jewish religious leaders, which included the Pharisees, who conspired together with the Roman government, of which the Herodians were a part of, to have Jesus arrested, tortured, and killed at the end of his life. Jesus wasn't anti-Rome enough for the Pharisees, and he wasn't pro-Rome enough for the Herodians. So evidently, the only thing that these two groups of Jesus' day had in common was a distaste for Jesus. And that's because the more you give your allegiance to a political perspective, the more your distaste for Jesus will grow. The more you will drown out the voice of Jesus in your life. And that happened with the Pharisees and the Herodians to the point that they eventually decided to silence Jesus for good. It was in many ways, quite literally, their tribalism that put Jesus on the cross. And quite often, it's ours as well. 
When Jesus died, one of the things that he died for is our tribalism. He died for the divisiveness of it all. He died for the harm that it causes to each other and to our world. He died for the bitterness and resentment that it stirs up in each one of our hearts, for the careless things that we say in the heat of the moment that disregard the image of God in the other person. All of those are sins that Jesus died for. And he died not just to forgive us for those things, but he died to give us freedom from them. To anyone who will trust and follow Jesus, he will offer you a better way forward than anything that either party has on offer. Jesus busts the door wide open to a new reality, to a a life marked more by finding common humanity with people instead of common enemies. The scriptures tell us that one thing the death of Jesus accomplished was that it, quote, broke down the hostility between people groups opposed to one another and made peace by the blood of his cross. So Jesus' death and resurrection were not just about us and our private personal relationship with Jesus. That's only where it starts. Jesus' death and resurrection were about setting relationships right in our world. They were about setting things right between groups of people that would otherwise be opposed to one another and about setting things right in the world at large. And so by taking this posture towards something as divided and as polarizing as politics is, we as followers of Jesus have an opportunity to put the good news of Jesus on display for a world that desperately needs to see it. And it all starts with what we worship. So here's the goal. Let's, as followers of Jesus, set our worship continually on the person of Jesus. And as we do that, let's let him realign our allegiances and set the world right through us. That's our prayer for this political season and for every political season, for every season of life, that the Holy Spirit would accomplish that through us, and it starts with what we worship. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the work of Jesus. God, thank you that you sent him to fix what we could not fix. God, and if there's anything that's, that's clear to me, every time I turn on the news and every time I look at social media and every time I read articles on the internet, if, there, if there's one thing that is abundantly clear to me is that we cannot fix what we have broken. And God, for all the systems and all the structures and all the laws and all the legislation and all the back and forth and all of that, It doesn't really seem like we've gotten any closer to fixing what's wrong with our world. And in some ways, it kind of feels like we've created some new problems. But God, what we know is that you are the answer. That the cross of Jesus is the answer. And God, that the more 
the work of Jesus on the cross is internalized in each of our hearts and is pushed out into how we treat other people regardless of their political allegiances and regardless of ours, the more that happens, the more things will get better. And so God, I pray for all of us, myself included, that maybe through these questions have realized that our allegiance is not where it should be. God, I ask that you would convict, that you would expose, that we wouldn't fight it, that we wouldn't push against it. But God, that we would let your loving spirit bring up the things in us that need to be addressed. And God, I pray that by the power of the spirit, we would put to death the things in us that give our allegiance to something other than you. And that in that process, you would renew us, that you would continually make us new. And God, that that would impact how we interact with those around us in substantial, lasting sorts of ways. So God, this is a work that we cannot do in us. We participate with you in it, sure, but this is something you have to do in us. And so we ask you, through your Holy Spirit, to come and work in our midst. And God, would you soften our hearts to be able to respond well. We ask this in your name, for your glory, for our good. Amen.